This episode is sponsored by Canis Latrans, a relentlessly persecuted yet vital North American mesopredator. Now, a word from some of our coyote friends. Listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Francisco Santiago Avila is an interdisciplinary researcher and nature advocate with over a decade's experience in conservation and animal science, ethics, and policy issues. He serves as the Big River Connectivity Science and Conservation Manager for Project Coyote and the Rewilding Institute, where he helps promote compassion and respect for wild carnivores in nature, their protection, and the rewilding of the Mississippi watershed. His work explores the application of nature ethics to our mixed community of humans, animals, and nature, with a focus on the promotion of worldviews rooted in an ethic of care and justice toward non-humans and a reverence for life. Fran is a graduate of the University of Puerto Rico with a BA in political science and economics, Duke University with a master's in public policy and environmental management, and the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a PhD in environment and resources. He's worked on a variety of environmental and conservation issues from state wildlife management to national and international impact assessments. I first became interested in environmental concerns, uh, not even you know conservation, I would say more like environment and sustainability to start with. Through my undergraduate studies, uh, I studied um, political science and economics at the University of Puerto Rico. And uh, through those studies, I was introduced to, well, basically the environmental destruction brought on by capitalism. And not only that, but the harm that it caused to beings that were the most vulnerable, historically oppressed, and that at the same time were the least responsible for this destruction and this harm to them. And those same interests of sort of trying to mitigate that vulnerability, trying to um, uplift the claims of those groups that are historically oppressed and least responsible for their predicaments is basically what started me off in the environmental movement and then moving on to conservation more more directly right it's this argument that um this case for our community of life being much more than our human community our community of life be life being a mixed community where we're embedded within a community of species and so my perception of social justice is that that social justice should include other species and our relationships with other species should be based on both compassion and respect for the claims of those other species. So that's how I sort of ended, went from political theory 
to economics, to environmental valuation, which I got dissolution with because of this argument of you only needing to protect something because of its monetary value through, you know, getting embedded into the environmental animal ethics literature, I started seeing living beings and all living beings as so much more than their production value, their economic value. And understanding that what's most important about living beings is more often than not, if not always unquantifiable and even ineffable, right? Even indescribable to some extent. So that is why I'm engaged in this, in this challenge of trying to um, trying to rewild the world at the same time that I try to promote um, equitable coexistence with other other than human life. Tell me a little bit about what's uh, what's happening very soon. Yeah, awesome. Um, so Big River Connectivity is um, this new initiative that we're launching in partnership uh, with you know it's a partnership between the Rewilding Institute, uh, Project Coyote and the Half Earth Project. And the intent or the, the mission behind this initiative is to reconnect and rewild Midwestern landscapes. So big river connectivity, meaning the Mississippi River watershed, right? That, that compo is composed of you know, all or, or parts of 32 states. And that accounts for a lot, for a third of, uh, of the continent almost, if not more. So what we're trying to do through that initiative is focus on this area that most folks have called historically flyover country and just highlight the huge potential that there is here for restoring nature, rewilding nature and letting nature take its course, right? And letting, giving nature some autonomy to repair itself like only nature knows how to do. Now that is one component of the big river connectivity is focusing on what we need to do to rewild these landscapes. Landscapes. Our point of departure here being uh, one promotion of both, as I mentioned, compassion and respect towards the uh, biodiversity that we can share the landscape with, that we don't often do share the landscape with in equitable terms, but that we can do and you know both science and ethics are letting us are telling us that this is doable, that this is not that complicated, and that this is going to further the well-being of everyone. Now that compassion and coexistence is a one component of big river connectivity. The other component is trying to mitigate our harmful human impacts on uh, on the land. And of course, this is very, very critical on Midwestern landscapes, on the, all the agricultural land, on this corn belt that is the Midwest. And we're calling this our ground zero, right, for this type of work. Why? Because here is where we think it is critical. And there's a lot of opportunity here for rewilding areas of lower productivity, of high erosion. And through permanently rewilding these areas, for example, floodplains are could be a huge gain here. Steep slopes that are marginal lands uh, uh, that more often than not don't get put into uh, agricultural production are also a big priority here, right? To the extent that we can mitigate these harmful impacts that we have on this environment that has been mostly uh, transformed to human development, that can allow for you know 
a lot of the rewilding initiatives and techniques that science has has evidenced work for increasing biodiversity, for increasing the resilience of these landscapes to negative impacts, like establishing corridors, uh, establishing cores, first of all, for biodiversity to exist with a, a large degree of autonomy from human impacts, especially negative human impacts, but then also establishing corridors so that you establish genetic uh, population connectivity from those populations, which again is going to increase the health and resilience of these environments and allowing for a connection of the biodiversity of the continent, both from the Gulf Coast all the way up to Canada and from the West all the way to the East, which is pretty much right, what we need to do with this uh, massive, massive watershed that we're trying to improve, that we're trying to make wilder, more biodiverse and beautiful. Last week, Audubon had its unveiling of the lower part of the watershed representing 50 million acres. I mean, you can just carve out a chunk of this and it's 50 million acres and you haven't even gotten close to half of it. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but, exactly. But it's it, does that ever get to you? Like, wow, this is, we've done big thinking exercises in the past, but this is really, <laughs> really big. How do you get your mind around that? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and it it's been it's been a challenge to wrap our heads around you know the the this huge undertaking, and you know where to even begin is a huge question when you have this this massive landscape, right? So, but we're getting we're getting through sort of the shock. We already have um, exercises for prioritizing communities that we want to engage in, uh, both on the coexistence and rewilding components of our initiatives. And this is something that we're working on with scientists as well as, as students, uh, environmental stu uh, science students as well that are contributing to, this, to these efforts. So the way we are attempting to, to begin this, this undertaking is by strategically identifying communities, be it you know, through a number of factors, location, demographic makeup, economic demographics as well, political uh, inclinations, as well as other reasons like the view they have towards wildlife and, of course, the amount of land that is available in those areas for rewilding. In that sense, we're identifying communities where our efforts can start. We've already identified certain communities and we're embedding ourselves in those communities by talking to civil servants, other conservation organizations, that are interested in doing this type of work on the ground. And there's a lot of that happening here as well. You mentioned, right, the uh, Audubon has a new Lower Mississippi initiative as well. And we're also seeing a lot of this stuff, right, with uh, a lot of states individually taking initiative due to this 30 by 30 goal of having 30% of uh, land under protected, uh, protected area designation by 2030. So a lot of states are engaging in these exercises as well. And we are embedding ourselves within those discussions. We're embedding ourselves within uh, as on roles of experts and uh, scientists as we are within those discussions to promote, you know, that for example, if you want resilient envi environments with this goal of 30 by 30, you can't dismiss meso predators. You can't dismiss large megafauna like you know wild ungulates 
like uh, coyotes, I mentioned bobcats, but other animals that are important for the resilience of ecosystems in the Midwest. Like, for example, when you see, when you take a look at the uh, Great Lakes states, uh, like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, there is a lot there to be done with the resilience of ecosystems when you have practices like wildlife killing contests and uh, unregulated hunting and, for example, hounding of large predators, basically decimating these populations so that you don't allow uh, biodiversity to recolonize, again, to be autonomous and recolonize uh, areas that are, we know that have sustainable habitat for these species. And we know that the recolonization of these species to that habitat, habitat is nothing but positive for the future of not only those lands, but future generations of both humans and animals as well. So plenty, plenty to be done, but I think we are pretty much engaging and embedding ourselves everywhere that we can, having conversations with the right individuals, both at an interpersonal level and at a structural level that we know we're gonna be able to influence policy changes. What makes you hopeful about the work you're doing, especially in light of some of the more challenging things to think about, like Iowa, <laughs> for instance, yeah. just the degree to which we've converted that to a garden? If you're used to looking like at the spine of the continent, if you're looking at the Yellowstone Yukon type things, this is not that. This is not saving something that's still wild. It's true rewilding something that hasn't been wild for quite a long time. Um, it's certainly a difficult task. I wouldn't say it gets me down. I think I look at it as, you know, a, a huge challenge, but I think there are so many opportunities here that are just ripe to be sort of like pounced upon, right? To use a, a carnivore move. <laughs> um, yeah. that, that they, they are, they're there for us to, for people to promote what you need basically is to build those connections so that folks know that there are other individuals that are interested in these changes, you know, and that's more often than not is a lack of interpersonal relations that might put a stop on these types of initiatives. So I think huge opportunities there in terms of uh, changes in worldviews that are happening uh, in terms of towards the environment as well as, as towards a lot of animals that, you know, potentially uh, or in the past were vilified in some way, uh, like coyotes, for example, being vilified as vermin. And in fact, that's still the case in some states, but that is the type of rhetoric, you know, and the type of worldview that we are attempting to change. And there are already scientifically evidenced changes in those values. We're seeing that a concern for the claims of the environment as a whole of species, of landscapes, even of individual animals are being foregrounded a lot more now than even a few decades ago by both animal and envi environmental organizations. We are seeing a change, for example, of rhetoric in um, issues around agriculture and the impacts of agriculture and the type of agriculture that we're engaging in on our natural systems. For example, the fact that uh, around 40% of the soy and corn that is grown on this corn belt is fed to animals rather than people. And the opportunity cost of engaging in those types of, um, of industries 
And in those types of trade-offs, when we know that, for example, we could feed a lot more people if we didn't feed all that, uh, all that corn and soy to animals, so we can mitigate the dead zone in the Gulf. We can mitigate erosion. We can mitigate the, uh, the increased influx of nitrogen in our systems if we mitigate practices that we know are harmful for the environment. This is, of course, a huge issue in Iowa, right? And, and, and these are, um, again, I will point to you know, these issues being in large part intersectional as well to the extent that they don't harm just animals, they don't harm just the landscape. A lot of the time, you know, we're seeing that human communities are being harmed by these anthropogenic impacts as well. And this is occurring all over this watershed. So, you know, we, we talk about Iowa as the ground zero because it is the state that we've identified as the most uh, transformed by humans. You know, so it is our greatest challenge and we think it's a great place to start, but these are issues that are pervasive across the watershed. If we change the perspective of how we look at them and we look at them from a position of, like Aldo Leopold said, being a citizen, of the land, then that is a better perspective to look at not only the ethics that are involved, but the science, because from that worldview, the scientific questions go beyond what is best for humans as well. The scientific research goes beyond what is best for humans to account for everyone, all the, all the beings that are gonna be impacted by these anthropogenic activities. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. How, how do you even start doing coexistence programs? What do you base it on when you're looking at the land? If you, if you look at the maps that were generated uh, last year and last fall, uh, for the Big River Connectivity Project. Again, we'll be here on the podcast homepage uh, for, for this particular episode. It, our first inclination was, how do you even do this? We've always been able to start with a mountain range or some giant national park. I'd, I'm, so my, my PhD was on uh, human wildlife coexistence, basically human carnivore coexistence. So prior to this project, you know, besides just knowing that uh, rivers uh, are corridors for these types of species to recolonize territory, uh, migrate to other areas, uh, establish genetic connectivity. I wasn't, you know, I didn't know much about them until I started looking. Uh, I became involved with this project. I started looking at how huge, you know, and how indispensable for the entire connectivity of the continent is the Mississippi River watershed and. All, all its primary corridors. So the Arkansas, Missouri, the Mississippi, the Illinois, Ohio, Tennessee rivers, right? All of those could become primary corridors across this very vast watershed. And what we need to do there is focus on those, right? So we focus, we've, we've tried through this mapping exercise. We've mapped these core regions that we'd like 
to connect these large core habitat areas, the driftless region uh, around uh, Minnesota, Iowa, a little bit of Illinois, Wisconsin, the, the four state Ozark Plateau and the four state Los, Los Hills area around Iowa. And our idea is that these rivers could function because they are not farmed, because the uh, adjacent land is very low productivity land for, for agric agriculturally, these could be primary corridors across the, the watershed, and then we could establish along those smaller cores and corridors that would be needed to expand to assist wildlife across those very, very still human-dominated landscapes. That's going to have to come through a process of a lot of changing of attitudes, but also has to come with redefining what we think is essential for us to engage on uh, in terms of human activities as a species and what should be faced out, left behind. A huge part of this is going to be commitment, getting a commitment from all parties, so civil society, governments, businesses, academia even, to uh, consistently promote a lower input culture. And this has to mean a lower input agriculture. This has to mean, and there's plenty of scientific evidence here, that a huge mitigation of the um, an, uh, commercial animal breeding, animal agriculture has to take place for this to happen due to the large negative impacts of these activities. So to the extent that we can connect those processes of changing worldviews that redefine what we actually need, that redefine our relationships, equitable, respectful relationships with nature, that allow nature space without this huge human intervention. And that at the same time, we recognize that that relationship has to come with mitigating human impacts, with changing our way of life, uh, because nothing else will, will do generally, business as usual won't do, then that, would, that is what's gonna get us to a healthier, more resilient, not only watershed, but North America, right? We're gonna be shrinking the Gulf of Mexico that way. We're gonna be allowing recolonization of species that uh, might've been extirpated or that were extirpated in some states. And along with this, keystone species that are also essential to regulating these natural processes. So it's all about rebuilding respectful, reciprocal relationships between human and non-human beings. And these, uh, this is again, this is, these are worldviews that have always been present in our systems of thought, but that, you know, for a variety of reasons, economic reasons, market reasons like capitalism, worldview reasons like anthropocentrisms, like human exceptionalism, we just haven't been able to agree on as a community, as a species. I mentioned one of the, the projects that we'd like to get involved that we're in the process of commenting on are states that are leading, um, that have ongoing conversations on these uh, policies of getting 30% of their state lands protected by uh, 2030, 30 by 30. Part of our argument to them is, for example, you can't expect to achieve that goal in Missouri without looking at Iowa, right? You can't expect to achieve that goal downstream without looking upstream. You can't expect to achieve that goal also in Illinois without looking at, and 
at what Iowa is doing and vice versa. So to that extent, we'd love for folks to start thinking like we are proposing, to start thinking about this as a Mississippi River watershed that we all have a part to play in, that this could be you know, the beginning of a worldview that establishes that watersheds may be a more important uh, community, a more important nested community than your political community at the state level. Why? Because it relates all of us within this region. So it speaks to interdependency. It speaks to relationality. It speaks to valuing also what others what the claims of others are in other states relative to yours, for example, right? And it speaks also to intersectionality, that we need to think that we are, to the extent that we want to further the well-being of nature, the well-being of our communities, we need to do that together. And to the extent that we further that, that goal, we're furthering everyone's well-being, the well-being of the entire community of life, rather than the well-being of just Iowans or just folks from Illinois or just Wisconsinites, right? That seems a much more holistic perspective, in my opinion. Well, I would I would imagine it's kind of disheartening to have a victory in one state and just because of an arbitrary line, the next state over or up uh, has a completely different human wildlife coexistence situation. They might even have a wildlife killing contest. And so you're looking at your watershed and you're looking at the, the, the travel possibilities, opportunities for certain species, and they don't know anything about state lines. And it, it's almost like, gosh, we're building a better corridor for them to reach a state that's currently hostile to them. And they'd be better if they'd stay in the state where we secured the end of a wildlife killing contest, <laughs> uh, but they don't know that. Like how frustrating, what are the kinds of issues that you have to deal with there? Yeah, the inconsistencies, inconsistencies and policies are massive. It's a huge gap in this type of vision that we're trying to promote, of course, you know, because that it speaks to what I just mentioned, right? Uh, right now, Folks from Wisconsin, for example, might refer to the population in that state as Wisconsin's wolves, you know, and that's sort of, they're taking ownership of those wolves and it, it becomes this rhetoric of what we do with these animals are, is our problem and we are, we have the right to do uh, whatever we'd like with them, you know, and first of all, you know, taking the human exceptionalism out of there, right, that these are also beings that should be respected, uh, that is a very limited view of what needs to happen for the Midwest to become, to, to have its environments restored and those environments to actually become resilient. So to the extent that folks in, in, in any state that want to extirpate or, or uh, draw down carnivore populations so that they don't recolonize other areas or simply you know, because they just don't want that amount of individuals in their state, then they are dismissing not only those animals, but they are dismissing the claims of a bunch of other individuals in other states that have as much legitimacy in the, um, the well-being of those individuals and in having their ecosystems that, that they live in restored as those individuals that currently live alongside these species, right? So right now, for example, we're dealing with 
a lot of um, a lot of our work is focused on promoting uh, an end uh, or a ban on wildlife killing contests in these states. And these are killing contests that you know they won't lar target large predators, because in a lot of these states, large predators are either protected, you know, like wolves under the Endangered Species Act, or um, they have their own hunting season. So, but uh, these wildlife killing contests most more often than not target meso predators like bobcats, like coyotes. And uh, we of course know that meso predators are also essential for the health and resilience of ecosystems. And nonetheless, environmental ag public agencies don't even know that these uh, wildlife contests are going on. They're not regulated despite, you know, these contests killing hundreds, even thousands of animals for recreational purposes. And uh, in fact, sometimes they don't even know how many animals have been killed. So that is, you know, that's a failure of science, but it's also a failure of ethics that you allow these things to occur without giving second thought for the claims of the animals involved and the claims of the humans that want healthier environments than what, with what is occurring right now with these contests in place. So to the extent that we can promote, you know, a lot of people don't know that these contests are even happening. So to the extent that we can get the word out about them, get the word out about the importance of mesopredators for biodiversity and ecosystem resilience and the huge role that they would play in initiatives for rewilding and 30 by 30, then that would be the first step. Second step being uh, promoting new worldviews again of that converge with arguments against human exceptionalism, like we a lot of often hear from uh, indigenous worldviews, but that also converge with a lot of Western worldviews that are more recent that also give the same consideration to non-human animals and non-human uh, communities as well. Right? And this is, I'll, I'll throw Aldo Leopold again here and say that one of the main points of Aldo Leopold when you read Ascend County Al Almanac is what you need to change is the content of the education. You know, and uh, this is something that I, I say a fair bit. It's not quite science what is going to get us to where we need to be. Although science is a critical component for understanding the state of things, understanding the alternatives that we're gonna that we have in resolving or moving forward these uh, these issues and understanding the consequences. But when it comes to worldviews, right, and the ethics that of our relationship with the non-human world, then I am very much with Aldo Leopold in the sense of what we need is an ecological ethic and that is what we're missing and in fact we don't we hardly even see that from public agencies as well and we're trying to fix that in our own way so there is again this idea that that's institutionalized that says that these animals are natural resources that they should be used by the individuals that want to use them as long as they're used wisely and this is also in the u.s fish and wildlife service objective that as long as human interests are being on these populations are being used wisely, the interests are uh, allowed. At the same time, you know, there's a lot of work from other disciplines, from anthropology, from critical animal studies, from philosophy, from uh, colonial studies that links all this prejudice against non-human animals with 
other issues in the human realm, like other prejudices against folks who are different for any kind, for their ability, for their skin color, for their worldviews, etc. I think that's critical to understand that, that the logic that, that human exceptionalism follows and by which we devalue non-human animals has very deep connections and was con- constituted at the same time as all these prejudices that still currently exist in the human arena, but that we know are unethical, right? Like prejudice against women, like prejudice against uh, people of color, like prejudice against differently able people. To the extent that we can make those connections, you know, that have already been made in the scientific and academic literature, then we can begin to craft an understanding of how we should consider what our policies promote in terms of values. Like, and by this, I mean, if we are promoting policies that allow recreational killing, then those policies are certainly devaluing those beings. There needs to be an, an, um, an engagement, an acknowledgement, and an analysis of why that is happening and how that is contributing to all the harm that we're doing, not only to animals, but to the environment and to each other through that same harm. Because again, animal agriculture is a perfect example here. It not only harms the animals that are involved in that process, it harms the adjacent environment and it harms adjacent human communities that face the pollution, the environmental harm that comes from engaging in that type of activity. So the extent that we can eliminate those, face those out, we'll all be better off. What can listeners do to help you, either on the ground locally, but also uh, globally? What can we do digitally or anything else to help you with your plans? We're partnering up with the Rewilding Institute and Pia Coyote and the Half Earth Project. So if you're involved or you're plugged into those organizations, you'll certainly hear about us. And hopefully you'll be interested and join our our mailing list and and follow our updates. These types of activities that they can um, directly engage on by, for example, signing petitions, sending letters to the representatives uh, or calling them um, to engage in, to support these initiatives, but also being the fact that you are more engaged with these issues, that you are informed with these issues can help a lot Uh, And here again, I'm gonna bring up the interpersonal aspect of policy, that to the extent that you within your own circles disseminate this information in a way that is compassionate to the worldviews of others, respectful, but that also tries to engage and to promote uh, coexistence to the individuals that may not be so inclined, that by itself, uh, would be huge for for disseminating, for spreading the word, and for changing worldviews. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.